Welcome to the In Comment Podcast. This is Hallie Post. This Insight episode comes from full episode 84 with Mark Moritz. Mark is a professor of anthropology at The Ohio State University who has studied pastoralist communities around the world. Here, Mark talks with Michael about his interpretation of open property regimes as an adaptation to resource scarcity and vulnerability in pastoralist systems, specifically discussing the Pashtun system in Afghanistan and his research in Cameroon to illustrate his interpretation and the different understanding of rights in these communities. This is the In Common podcast. So I've been interested recently in the idea that common property can be adaptive. And I feel like in some ways, the, the way I've been thinking about common property is, is overlaps a bit with how you think about open property or open access in that for me, common property is partly relevant because it represents um, less formality. And I think that's a, the idea of formality versus informality is a really important here. The idea that more informal arrangements allow for more ad hoc adjustments to changing the circumstance and uncertainty. I've seen that in the common property discourse that if you're facing a lot of uncertainty, it makes more sense to not own things privately because maybe my plot of land doesn't uh, do so well this year. So if I'm working with the whole community, we can work together to avail ourselves of more resources. Um, I feel like most people who talk about the adaptive advantages of common property couldn't actually say much more than that. We kind of know that general narrative. So I'd love to hear from you, you know, what you think open property is and how it relates to these other forms of property and how you think it relates to the dominant discourse about what open property is, how I think about it, for example, like, how is it, how do you think about it and how is it different from what I assume it to be? I have to start with the 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 the, the, the four main types, the conceptual framework, and so I think in a number of my papers I make the argument that these conceptual framework and these categories shape the way we see the world, and so I experienced it myself um, when I went to Cameroon and started studying pastoralists. Not even uh, I was not studying common pool resource management or common pool management. Um, but that framework, the Ostrom framework, was in my head. And I, uh, so when I lay, um, at some point a couple of years ago, I went back to my field notes uh, from my early years in Cameroon and I, how I described access to common pool resources. I described it as open access, but basically I didn't recognize that it was different from what the theoretical, theoretical model predicts. And so I was in a situation where I describe a reality that is not described in, in theoretical models. And so the reason I came up with the open property uh, regime um, is because I want to fit in with this existing four uh, categories. Uh, but I want to make the argument that there's another form of uh, property regime that is not open access, where there's no, where it's free for all, and there's, um, or it is free for all, but it's not because of the lack of rights, but it's because there is a right that everybody has a right to access to these common pool resources. Um, so that's one. The other thing is, um, and this is, I, I started with studying pastoralists, and so I'm going to make the arguments for uh, open property regimes using the case of uh, pastoralists. But in the PNES paper that you've read as well, 
We also looked at other cases, so horticultural systems, foragers, as well as uh, marine fisheries. But for past list, one of the concerns is uh, access to resources. And these resources uh, vary in space and time. And so they're actually characterized, the grazing resources are characterized by high variability in spatial, in high variability in the spatial temporal distribution. And so basically it means that you never know uh, where the rain will fall and when the rain will fall. And where the rain falls will be is where the grass will be. And so this means that the past list are mobile. They go with their livestock to where their resources are. And it's not that it's totally random and chaotic. Uh, there's some seasonal patterning to it, uh, but it's not entirely predictable either. And so this means for past list to be stuck or to be attached to a particular piece of land or own a particular piece of land doesn't make any sense. And so for them, it's all about flexibility and mobility to go where those resources are. And it's not just for individual pastoralists, it's for all pastoralists. And so that's, that's the right, um, that's the, the right that uh, is critical in an open property regime. Because to deny people the right to access, or free, to deny people the right to free access to resources, basically denies them the right to grass and denies them the, the right to life. Um, and so in one of my papers, I argue that basically the way pastoralists see the world or see common pool resources, it is, they see it as a public good. It's like clean air that everybody has a right to, that nobody can own. Of course, for scholars of the commons, when they see grass, they say it's a common pool resource because that's how we think about it as scholars. So that distinction, I mean, it's interesting, Mark. So the distinction between the common pool resource and a public good is really about exhaustibility or, or subtractibility. And it, it, it does seem like a part of the story that you're talking about here also has to do with how much environmental pressure is being placed on the resource system. Yeah, and, that, and that's a good point too. And so there's some, something fundamentally different between sedentary folk and nomadic folk. And I'm kind of exaggerating, but um, I'm exaggerating to make the point clear. Um, so the past list that I worked with in Cameroon, many of them originally came from Nigeria. Many of their kin and friends went off to Chad, to the Central African Republic, some even to the Congo. And so what they do is they go where the resources are. And so if there's resource scarcity, they will go to the places where it's better. Actually, they will go to the places where it's better, um, even before there's scarcity. And so for past lists, uh, there are no boundaries and there is no scarcity because there's always some place elsewhere where there's resources. Maybe not to be the best. Um, and sometimes they cannot go to places because of insecurity. Um, but because of their mobility and because of their flexibility, the resources are basically unlimited. Of course, for sedentary folks, that makes no sense because you say, this is the village. These are the village boundaries. And these are the limited resources. Or you say, this is my nation and these are the boundaries and these are the resources. And of course the past list that I work with, but it's also in other parts of the world, past list cross national boundaries. They go from one area to another area. And so their perception, their, their idea of resources is very different. Mm. Yeah, there was some language you used that I think I just don't have the background to fully understand, Mark, when you talk about, this was in the IJC piece, um, 
this idea that these systems are in disequilibrium relating to this idea that they're, you know, the, the, the vegetation is not being driven. The, the term you use is there's a weak coupling between the herbivores and the vegetation and what it's, it's more driven by the, what's the term you use the root. Oh, I wish I could find it now, the root bank. And so that's this idea that biophysical drivers are more what's, what's, um, causing abundance or depriving us of it is, is there extra work? This idea of disequilibrium does for us in trying to understand this. Cause I've, I've struggled in my own work with the idea of equilibrium a lot, like people use it, but I, I often find I don't fully understand like what someone means when they talk about equilibrium. And so I was interested in your use of the term that you're saying that, look, these systems are actually not in equilibrium. Like what's the significance of that for you and how does it relate to these arguments? Uh, the, um, a couple of decades ago, uh, there were a number of great papers that looked at rangeland systems, and uh, particularly in uh, with the Turkana in East Africa. And what they, so again, the concern is that in pastoral systems, livestock populations grow exponentially and then they will overgraze the range. And so what they found in this long-term study of the Turkana ecosystem was that Droughts happen at such a regular, um, uh, call it, regular pace um, that livestock populations never reach um, uh, carrying capacity. And so when when there's a drought, a lot of the livestock will die, and then the pastoralists have to start over again. And so, to a certain extent, it's the 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 the, the variability and uh, unpredictability of rainfall that keeps livestock populations in check. And so there is no concern. And so that's why what pastoralists do and what's very adaptive is they try to maximize their herd size because they know a couple of years from now, there may be a drought. And if I lose 30% of my animals, I'll be better off if I start off with a hundred animals rather right. than 50 animals. Okay. So it's not the grazing that drives the ecological conditions, but it's the rainfall that drives the ecological conditions. Okay. I am reminded of the work by Alan Savory, who argues, you know, he has this, this line, like cows can save the world, that there's also this idea that a lot of grasslands are actually adapted to the disturbance of herbivory. And so it's not this, idea, and it's similar to the arguments about like fire, right? We've suppressed fire a lot in the Western US, and now we've got these huge fuel loads. And really what we're dealing with is a disturbance adapted system that has become vulnerable because we're over controlling it in a way. And so that's a, um, that's a good point. And so one of the most disastrous thing to manage pastoral systems is to put people in place and to settle them and say, you cannot move and this is where you stay for your whole year. And so that's why in many cases you don't see privatization or common property regimes in pastoral systems because it constrains people to a particular place. Um, and then there's a greater risk of overgrazing. And so Intensive grazing is not bad, but it needs to be short, and then you have to move on to another place. Right. Um, that's so, what mobile pastoralists do. Okay. So, Mark, I think um, for a lot of people, where they where they potentially get hung up with your argument is um, based on this assumption that when someone talks about, and I can't tell actually whether when you talk about open property, it's the exact same thing as open access it's not the same thing, right? You're talking about open property as kind of a fourth category and, and fifth category. You're right. 
Um, cause it's not what you're saying. You're, you're not saying that in this open system, anyone can do anything. Exactly. Cause and, and it's confusing, right? Cause in some ways we're saying, well, there aren't restrictions the way we're used to thinking about them. The emphasis is more on guaranteeing access as opposed to restricting it. So we're kind of flipping the script a bit here. But then again, when I look at the, um, the Pashtun case in Afghanistan, how as you describe it, there's, it's clear that there are rights, mm -hmm. you know, and a distinction I also think we need to make, which you make is between is within group versus between group, right? Within pastoralist communities and between them and other people. But my understanding is that in this case in Western Afghanistan, if someone comes to an area, there is this, you know, one of the universal principles that every human arguably has for property rights is first in time, first in right, right? If you were there first, no one else has a right to displace you. You know, in my own mind, that's partly how I've made sense of, right? Like where do indigenous rights come from? How, do, how are those validated? I think they're validated in part by this, I think a universal principle that we have, even though, you know, the whole process of colonialism clearly didn't follow that, but we all kind of know this. So there is, there are rights here. Yeah, so, right. And so the distinction that I make between open access and open property is, is a, and for me, the, the distinction is not, I really make that distinction for other scholars of the commons. And so uh, Ostrom and many others say open access means that there's no rules. Everything goes there right. and, and it will be disaster. Um, and I say, no, in these pastoral systems that I've studied, um, both ethnographically and in the literature, people have uh, free uh, and open access to these resources, but it's not because there's no rights, it's because there's a shared understanding that everybody has a right and nobody can be excluded. And uh, I think you describe it right. I flipped the script. And I also do that with Pashtun case. And so, um, before I figured out that there was such a thing as open property regimes, I probably would have described it as a common pool, as a commons, uh, because mm -hmm. there are rules and they regulate uh, access. But if you look, if you look on the long term and what happens over the long term, and what actually happens in reality, it's very flexible. And so, who's a host now is not a host next year. And so, if you look over decades or longer, basically it's open access. And so. It's the, there's a cup. It's and again, it's a way of looking at the world, and so it's the conceptual framework. But also, what what time frame are you looking at? And so that's really interesting. If you only look at uh, one year or two years, then it seems like the boundaries are clear and there's there's little flexibility. But if you look over ten years or twenty years, then basically you see it's an open property regime. Uh, it's, people are not fixed in place. They may be fixed in place for a couple of years, but then there's a turnover of the population. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually hadn't appreciated that when I was reading your work that really like, because I, I, I remember a paragraph where you say, look, some people might see this as a common property regime. Some people see, might see it as private. And then you more or less say, hear me out about like why I think this is open. And so it's really, yeah, because if you went to the, if someone just visited the system, it would look like the, these people are on this plot of land and right now they don't want anyone else using it, which, you know, which makes sense. You, if someone else, you can't actually, and this is the funny thing about like common property too, is okay. A community owns it, but use is individual. Like 
I, you know, if I'm using something, you can't physically occupy that same space. So even when there's these more open regimes, there is some congestibility. There is some kind of, if I'm using something, you can't actually take that fish. You can't actually graze your cows on that land while I'm doing it. But if we look at the longer term, that's where the, the actual picture of the property regime comes into place. Because in, if I went back in two years, it's someone else there or even yeah, like would, a couple months. Okay. I would, I would push it a little. Uh, so that's the case of the Pashtun. And so indeed, if you look at the long term, the, 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 it's very open. Where I work in Cameroon, it's open access in the Lagoon floodplain. I really focus on a small part. And so I, I put analytical boundaries and that's, and that's, I studied what happened in that particular uh, uh, floodplain. But what you see is that people go back and you mentioned attachment to place. And so what you see is that people go back to the same places. And so when you look at Google Earth, um, or when I look at Google Earth, I can see those field sites, those campsites where people camp. And so since people camp there, year after year after year after year, uh, they, they become bare spots. And if I were a conventional researcher, I would say, oh, it's degraded because of the, 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 the cattle. Um, but now that I've worked with pastlists, now I think, oh, that's a perfect campsite. There's no grass and snow snakes and it's easy to clean. Um, but people go back to those same places over and over, but they don't own those places and they don't, cannot exclude others. And so, when other people show up and put their camp next uh, next to them, and basically their cattle will graze the same uh, uh, pastures, the only option is, that's um, what you call it, either to move or just to uh, accept it as is. Uh, that's the only option. They cannot uh, deny people the right to camp there. And this was, and so I've observed that uh, in, in Cameroon in normal conditions. In a couple of years, together with my colleague Mwazamu um, Amadou, we studied when ha what happened when pastoralists from Nigeria who were fleeing uh, Boko Haram moved in a Logone floodplain with uh, thousands of people and uh, hundreds of thousands of cattle. What happened then? And they too were not excluded. They were not chased away. And the only option that uh, Cam the resident Cameroonian pastoralist had was to move elsewhere or basically deal with it. I mean, it was not ideal. But the idea that you cannot deny people the right to live and to keep their animals alive, that was more important than saying, this is mine, you cannot have it. Thanks for tuning in. The In Common Podcast is a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To explore more episodes of the podcast, as well as our blog, visit our website at www.incommonpodcast.org. Here you will also find a list of the members of our recently expanded team, as well as a link to our Patreon page where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter at InCommonPod. Thanks again.